you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open them this morning with me to John chapter 6. For those of you visiting with us, we've been working our way chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through the Gospel of John. We started this study at the beginning of the summer and now are in chapter 6. We've made it a long way in a few months, haven't we? We've still got a long way to go. As you're turning there, chapter 6 is the longest chapter in both the Gospel of John as well as the longest chapter in the entire New Testament. Now that's not significant in and of itself because the chapter and verse divisions in your English Bibles are not inspired, they're not part of the original, but it does mean that this next section has a lot in it, a lot of content, and so we're going to chop up chapter 6 into a couple different sections. Last week and in the weeks prior, we've been camped out in chapter 5 and in this monologue of Jesus where Jesus is declaring his identity before his critics in Jerusalem. And now as we come to chapter 6, before we read it, I want to give you a little bit of context. Now Jesus is again on the move with his disciples. You're about to see that the chapter begins with two words, after this. Now after this can be taken in a variety of ways, right? It can be taken immediately after this, or it can be taken some vague amount of time, and that's what it is. It's some vague amount of time. It could be weeks, it could be months, it could be even as much, some commentators say, as much as a year later between chapter 5 and chapter 6. We know it certainly was a length of time because Jesus has moved from Jerusalem to way up north of where he was in the region of Galilee. And it's actually the only account that John, the Apostle John, records of Jesus' ministry in that region. The other gospel accounts record much of Galilean ministry, but this is John's only glimpse into that ministry. And it fits with John's focus that this would be the only glimpse. Why do I say that is because I have been pressing home to you that this account of John in contrast to Mark, which we studied several years ago, is a largely a theological reflection on Jesus' life. Right, right out of the gate in the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I mean, he just went right into the deep end, right at the start. So, so much of John's recording in the Gospel of Jesus' movements are actually in the south. They're in the southern part of Israel. And that's where the more sophisticated audiences were. That's where the teachers of the law, obviously, were primarily residing. Folks concerned about the spiritual prophecies. Folks concerned about matters of the law and that kind of thing. Now, it's not that the Galileans up in the north, uh, it's not that they weren't concerned about those things. They were. It's just that they were also more concerned, maybe more concerned about down-to-earth stuff. One commentator describes them as peasants living close to the soil. I guess we could say they're more blue-collar folks, concerned about where their next meal is coming from, concerned about their livelihood. And what Jesus is about to do in their midst then is both down-to-earth as well as deeply theological. Not only that, but it's for the masses. It's for everyone who is about to see this incredible wonder. But it's also specifically for 
his disciples. You see, only John, this account of the feeding of the 5,000, which we're about to read, it's included in all the Gospels. It's an important account. Other than the resurrection, this is the only miracle that's in all four Gospels. But only John's Gospel records these individual conversations that we're about to hear between Jesus and his disciples. And so this morning's focus, before we get to the theological reflections that actually Jesus and John will go into at the end of chapter 6, before we get into that high-level thinking, I want to focus our hearts where Jesus' heart is, right out of the gate, and that is on his disciples. That's where we're going to focus this morning. So, with that introduction, John chapter 6, it's our tradition here at Ascension to stand for the reading of God's Word, so I invite you to do that with me if you're able. John chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 21. Listen as I read and follow along. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was much grass in the place, and so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to take him and make him by force, King Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and they started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough. A strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Your mission, should you choose 
to accept it. You recognize that line? Our family loves the Mission Impossible movies, right? These great action movies, a seemingly impossible task is accomplished through the genius and superhuman physicality of Ethan Hunt, as well as the resources of Benji and Luther, his behind-the-scenes team. Ethan Hunt and his team, they always find a way to complete the mission impossible, don't they? So it's actually not impossible. It's just really hard. This passage that I just read to you covers one extraordinary day. A day in which our Lord Jesus, in addition to performing a very public miracle, which, as I said, we're going to unpack more of the theological significance of it next week, He gives those closest to Him some very pointed and practical lessons. Lessons for their future ministry and mission. Lessons for our ministry and mission. Three truths that I want us to be challenged by this morning as we work our way through this passage. And the first one is this. Jesus calls us, Jesus calls you to the impossible. Jesus calls us to the impossible. Unlike the MI team, our mission, the mission of the followers of Jesus, the mission of the church, really is impossible. We're not going to get it done simply by our genius or simply by our resources. Let me explain how John teaches us this. Some length of time after the events of last week, we've talked about, we don't know exactly how much time. Now, way up in the northern region of Galilee, Jesus and his disciples are going to the mountain. When you think mountain, don't think Baker or Rainier, think kind of a hill. All right, so they're up on the hills. Jesus' popularity is growing, and with that popularity is growing opposition, right? Jesus needs some time to retreat. One of the many instances in the gospel where we see the humanity of Jesus just needing to pull away a bit and recharge with those closest to him. But he also needs to prepare his guys, the disciples, for what is about to come. He needs to equip them for their mission, which will be to take the good news of his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to the ends of the earth. And so here they are, Jesus and his disciples, up on this hill, and and in the distance, they see a crowd, (laughs) a large crowd coming towards them. They didn't know how many, but John records for us about how many people it was. 5,000 people, but 5,000 is just the men. Add women and children, we're talking probably 10 to 15,000 people coming towards Jesus as he is perched high on this hill with 
his disciples. That's like the majority of Climate Pledge Arena coming towards Jesus and the disciples. Well, Jesus sees this. The disciples see this. And as, as everyone's eyes are getting big, there's this great interaction. right? I, I kind of imagine Jesus, I don't know that he did this, but I kind of imagine Jesus taking his elbow and just nudging Philip. Just nudging him. Hey, Philip, where are we going to get food to feed all these people? Can you imagine the faces of the disciples at this question? What, what kind of a question is that? All kinds of questions come up in our minds. First and foremost, why is he asking Philip? Is he asking Philip just because Philip's the closest one to him? Well, actually, Philip was from the nearby town of Bethsaida. Philip knew the locals. He was a local himself. He knew the caterers that could handle such a crowd. He knows where to get takeout for the masses. But really, we should be asking, why is Jesus asking this question in the first place? Well, John tells us, verse 6. If you have your Bibles with you, look at it with me. He said this, To test him. For he knew himself what he would do. You see, Jesus is after something in Philip. He's after something in all of these disciples. So verse 7, Philip answers Jesus honestly. And Philip focuses on the financial impossibility of this task. Even if we had 200 denarii, which is the ancient equivalent of about eight months of wages, even if we had that kind of money, Jesus, it wouldn't be enough. Really, Jesus, this is impossible. Let's be realistic. So what's the deal? Is Jesus just messing around with his disciples? No, of course not. Jesus says everything with intentionality. He's out to show them the impossibility of their mission. And then even more importantly, the solution to that impossible mission. He's bringing Philip specifically to the end of himself, to that point of powerlessness, because that's where dependence begins. Jesus is the God of the impossible. After all, John notes in this account that all of this happened when the feast of Passover was at hand. That yearly commemoration and celebration of Yahweh doing the impossible for His people. Right? Not just the angel of death passing over His people, which was at the center of the Passover, but everything that surrounds that monumental event in the life of Israel, the Exodus, all those events, rescuing his people from the powerhouse that was Egypt by bringing Pharaoh to his knees, splitting the sea in two when Pharaoh changes his mind and comes after them, feeding them in the wilderness with bread from heaven. Now, Philip knew these stories. In fact, they were fresh in his mind. It was the time of Passover. 
And not just that, but he was there when Jesus turned water to wine. He was there when this man who had been an invalid for 38 years suddenly stood up and walked away. He had witnessed countless other wonders that John doesn't record for us, but we know that they're there. And yet, where did his mind go? Where did Philip's mind go? What are my available resources? How can I solve this? And the question is, are we any different? Now, don't get me wrong. It's not necessarily bad to ask those questions. Except, I suppose, when Jesus, the Lord of the universe, is sitting next to you. And the question that he asked you is an impossible task. You see, impossible things are ahead. Not just in this mass of people coming hungry, but in all that the apostles are going to have to face in the months and the years to come. Impossible things are ahead for us too. Jesus will say, put off your sin. Put away that addiction. Impossible. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. (laughs) It's impossible. Be faithful and rejoice always in a world of darkness and fear. It's impossible. Call dead hearts stuck in their sin, stuck in themselves. Call them to Jesus. It's impossible. Take the gospel to the entire world. Cover this globe with my name. Impossible. Turn the hearts of our children to Jesus against all the voices in the world. Impossible. You see, it's all impossible. And yet Jesus calls you to it. But here's the thing, he is never without a plan. He always knows what he is going to do. Verse 6. But still, I confess, (laughs) I struggle with this. It's too messy. The problem is too big. I'm too messy. I mean, one of the things as I was studying this passage, one of the things that's stuck out to me like a sore thumb in all the ways that I'm not like Jesus was His compassion. That's not how I'd respond. I'm with whatever disciple spoke this in Luke 9, Luke's recording of this miracle. We read in Luke 9.12, one disciple says, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions. Yeah, now we're talking some sense, right? It's their own fault they're hungry. It's their own fault they didn't come prepared. Why is this our problem, Jesus? But thankfully, Jesus doesn't treat our hunger that way, does He? And He won't let us off that easy. He calls us to the impossible. That's the first thing that he teaches the disciples and us here today. But there's another. This is a long point. Long in wording, not necessarily in length. 
Jesus loves to use the ordinary to do the extraordinary and extravagant. That's the second thing we see. Jesus loves to use the ordinary to do the extraordinary and the extravagant. Not only am I with that disciple, whoever spoke that, I'll find out in glory who spoke that phrase. That's my guy. Not only am I with that disciple in Luke's account, but I'm with Philip here. Like, I don't know what Andrew is thinking. I don't know exactly what he's thinking. Andrew overhears this question directed towards Philip and finds a little kid with a meager lunch, some barley bread, which is the bread of the commoner. It's the bread of the Galilean, right? Not fancy, not particularly tasty. A couple fish. We're not talking like big rainbow trout. We're talking like little dried sardines. Great, Andrew. Very helpful. Wonderful find. right? It's like bringing the forest fighters a squirt gun to help them fight the fire. But maybe, just maybe, with Andrew's response there, there's a seed of faith, right? Maybe Andrew's thinking, with all that I've seen, I bet Jesus could do something here. And that's exactly what Jesus wants. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He takes the ordinary and he shows himself strong. He does the extraordinary. Think about it. Jesus didn't need to use this boy's lunch. Right? Jesus could have just said, watch this. And it could have started snowing cornflakes. Right? Or he could have said, listen to this. And he could have silenced all the growling stomachs of 10,000 people where immediately they felt full. He could have done that. And yet he uses the ordinary. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says that the Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Moses didn't want to do it. He didn't want to lead God's people out of Egypt. He felt like he couldn't do it. Not a public speaker. But God called him to it. I don't sometimes want to do it. I sometimes I feel like I can't do it. But God calls me to it. And through the power, through His power, the ordinary becomes not just useful, but it becomes extraordinary. The impossible through His power becomes possible. Remember these disciples, these were normal dudes. Fishermen and carpenters, not the highest educated. Not recipients of generational wealth or or power. These were common guys. 1 Corinthians, Paul tells the Corinthian church, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Man, I love those passages. Friends, this is not a believe-in-yourself pep talk. This is a believe-in-the-God-who-calls-you talk. 
One commentator says this, it's not the magnitude of the gift. It is into whose hands it is given. If you will take what you have, no matter how small or great it may be, and place it in the hands of the Master, you will find that it is more than sufficient for whatever task He sets before you. Isn't that encouraging? You don't have to be Ethan Hunt or anything close to Him. Just be you, united to your Savior and letting Him work through whatever you have. So Jesus takes this lunch and He becomes the host of this impromptu dinner of 10,000 people. Right? He does what we do. He stops and He gives thanks to the Father. That word give thanks, that phrase give thanks, it's actually a form of the word Eucharist. And like those trick birthday candles that keep relighting after you blow on them, you know, they keep coming back. Jesus' power somehow, I don't know if, if like you could see it, but His power just regenerates new food. It's like when people take out of the basket, suddenly it's back in the basket as well as in their hands. Jesus loves to use the ordinary to do the extraordinary. But He also loves to do the extravagant. And I I couldn't just walk away from this point without pointing this out. Remember the wine at the wedding feast? right? We, We use that word extravagant to describe that when Jesus became the master of that feast because it was good wine. And it was a lot of good wine. Jesus doesn't skimp. Jesus isn't rationing here. He is feeding until everyone is satisfied. Verse 11, as much as they wanted. Verse 12, until they had eaten their fill. Almost as if He's saying, I'm enough for you. I'm more than enough for you. I will provide whatever you need. And that was for the masses, but then he drives this point home. Remember, we're, we're kind of focused on the disciples this week. He drives this point home with the disciples because each disciple is left with a basket of extra. He's enough for them. And symbolically, he's enough for all of Israel. The twelve tribes. And that leads us to one last lesson for the day. And it's this, I am and I'm always with you. That's what Jesus says, I am and I'm always with you. It's the end of an incredible day and the disciples are on the move again. Mark's account tells us that Jesus told them to go ahead and he would stay and dismiss the crowd. He returned to the mountaintop to spend some time with his father. And as far as the disciples knew, when they got back into this boat to head across the sea, Jesus would catch up with them. But of course, he always has good plans for his people. So they get into their boat. It's super late by this time. It's been an exhausting day. And they start this trek across the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, which John tells us, has a lot of different names. 
The Sea of Galilee was no pond, right? It's a big sea, 64 square miles, 7 miles wide, 13 miles long. In addition to that, the topography puts the sea in a basin, right? It's 700 feet below sea level. It's sandwiched between the desert floor and Mount Hermon, which is the one place in Israel at 9,300 feet that actually got snow at times. And all that meant that the sea would get crazy weather sometimes. Crazy winds. And the disciples knew this. They weren't, this is one, one of their first rodeo, right? They, they were fishermen. They knew. They had already experienced one of these crazy storms earlier with Jesus in the boat. John doesn't record that, but the other gospel writers record that. And that one was so bad that even their hardy, seaworthy natures, they were scared with that one. That one was so bad. Well, John doesn't record here that they're scared of the winds. That's not what they're scared of. They're just tired. I mean, it's the middle of the night. Again, we don't know exactly from John's account what time of day it is, but we we can figure it out through the other gospel accounts. It's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It's late. They're in the middle of the lake. They've been rowing for hours. The wind is blowing, and they're not making any progress. They're way off course. Things look impossible again. But this time, Jesus isn't even here. He's not even here. I like how Kent Hughes, a pastor and commentator, he sets this scene. He says, There were the disciples battling the gale, wondering if they would make it to shore. The storm was raging. The waves were immense. The spray kept dashing up over the ship. The masts had begun to crack, and water was sloshing in the dark hold of their beleaguered ship. The disciples probably wondered, Has the Lord forgotten us? And the answer, of course, is no. The Lord hasn't forgotten them. In fact, Mark tells us that Jesus can see them. He can see their struggle from the mountain. He's watching all of this take place. And just when they think, when they assume that there is no way that Jesus can get to them, here He comes. Solidifying water molecules under his feet. He walks on top of the sea. It's this. Not the wind. Not the waves. It's this that scares the heck out of him. Jesus isn't just dividing the sea like Moses did. He's trampling on the sea. In this, He reveals Himself to His disciples and nobody else as the Lord and Creator, the glory of God come to earth. You see, we studied Mark's account of this several years ago. And you might remember that Mark adds a little phrase about Jesus walking to His disciples. And he adds this curious phrase. He says, He meant to pass them by. Do you remember that from Mark? He meant... To pass them by. In Exodus 33, Moses needs reassurance of Yahweh's presence. And so he asks in verse 18 of Exodus 33, please show me your glory. 
And Yahweh said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Then in 1 Kings 19, the Lord comes to Elijah and we read in verse 11, the Lord passed him by. See, those passages were written in Hebrew. Our passage this morning was originally written in Greek, but the same wording is used. The same picture is painted. The living God, the glorious one, has come near in Jesus. This is the one whom Job spoke of in Job chapter 9. He alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. And then in verse 11 of Job 9, Behold, he passes by me. The disciples see the Lord Jesus walking on the sea and they don't know what to make of Him. They think it's a ghost. So Jesus identifies Himself as the same One whom He has showed by His action. He says in verse 20, It is I. Or translated more literally, I am. I am. John will tell us that while Jesus was on earth, He declared, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. But here He simply declares two Greek words, Ego ami, I am. And as one commentator wrote, Jesus is identifying Himself in the linguistic echo of the divine name. Jesus is the Lord. I am, and I'm always going to be with you, he reminds his disciples. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid in the chaos of life, in the disorder of darkness, in the impossibility of whatever situation you find yourself in, even in death. Jesus says, I am God, and I will not abandon you. I am, and I'm with you always. What good promises for us this morning. Brothers and sisters, there's more to unpack from the events of this day that John records. But today, here and now, hear these promises. Yes, Jesus calls you and I to an impossible mission. A mission that's impossible with our own resources. But He is the God of the impossible. And He loves to use ordinary folks, ordinary things like you and me for that mission. And He promises that He will never abandon us. What does He say at the very end of Matthew's Gospel in Matthew 28? Behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. Great Father in heaven, we thank you for these gospel promises for those who know and love you, for those who are seeking to follow you, Christ, that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. That though you call us to impossible things, things that in our own flesh and with our own resources we can't accomplish, you are at work. You are on the move. You are using ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And for that, we're thankful. 
Thankful that we don't have to be rock stars. We don't have to be movers and shakers. We simply have to be faithful servants looking to our Savior, depending upon Your grace, living and walking by the power of Your Spirit. Oh, Father, when we are asked the question, how are You going to do this? May our first response not be to search our pockets for what we have. But may our first response be crying to You. Lord, how are You going to help me? How are You going to do this through me? What do You want me to do in obedience to You? Oh, Father, this I ask in the powerful name of Jesus, the One who is, I am. Amen.